Welcome to Live Well, Be Well with your host, Sarah Ann Macklin. If I can just ask one thing to my new or old listeners, please hit the subscribe button and also share this podcast with friends. It means more than you realise. And, you know, I'm doing my TV work, I'm writing books. And, and she said, no, 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 it'll be great. Trust me, we'll just do it as a kind of side hustle. You know, famous last words. So anyway, so we've joined forces. I mean, talk about, you know, side hustle. We built it, the two of us, into what was at the time, I think, Britain's biggest independent beauty brand before selling it back in 2010. It was a steam train. We stepped on it and it just shot off. Today, I am thrilled to have an inspirational guest on the show to talk about her entrepreneurial journey into founding one of the biggest beauty brands in the UK. Liz Earle has revolutionized the well-being sector and forever changed the connection between beauty and health. I remember growing up with my mum using Liz Earle products from a really early age and recognizing the strong brand's morals around natural beauty care, and it being one of the first to bring these conversations to the center stage. Lizelle has pioneered the health and the beauty industry, bringing much needed ethical conversations to the forefront. She is an author of 35 books. She hosts the Lizelle podcast, and her new venture has been launching the Lizelle Wellbeing Magazine. Liz is on a mission to help women celebrate every stage of their lives. And many of us have been on this journey with Liz for many years. I felt so inspired by today's conversation where we covered Liz's journey through becoming an entrepreneur in the early days, juggling motherhood and coming full circle to focusing back on her brand and the health and wellbeing side, which is truly Liz's main passion the trials and the tribulations she encountered and how she mustered the strength and the resilience to carry on when times became really tough and to not be defeated and to grow bigger. I am so excited to share this episode with you today, especially to any young female founders who are listening. This episode was a real inspiration to me and I think it will be to many of you listening too. Hopefully after listening, you might realize that it's not always plain sailing, but one that is a journey when starting any company, any business, or any brand. I was really honored to hear Liz's story today. Liz, welcome to Live Well, Be Well today. Thank you so much for coming on. How are you? It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm really well, thank you. I'm sitting in my bedroom in Kenya. It's a bit hot. That's so nice to hear because currently I'm still in Battersea and it's it's still (laughs) raining. And to give context, I went on to Liz's show a few weeks ago and I'm still in the same place and it's still raining. It's not changed on that front. But what are you doing in Kenya? That sounds idyllic. Give me a bit of background to why you're there. A family home here for years and my eldest son lives and works out here. And I've got a number of charity connections. My own charity has a lot of projects in Kenya. And I'm patron and advocate for a few charities out here in East Africa. And I haven't been because of COVID for a couple of years. Obviously, I haven't been able to get out. So normally, I'm out here a couple of times a year. So I've kind of saved up all those visits. So I came out in the new year. 
for a couple of months to do field trips and research and to carry on working. I mean, I've been doing my podcast, obviously, we've been talking and my magazine work and all of that. But it's coming to the end now, so I'm, I'm going to be heading back home. I've just been waiting for the sun to come out. So, I mean, that's something that is really interesting because as a child, you moved around a lot. So it seems like you're kind of very settled with actually moving around and you obviously have your farm as well. You've been in London and you've been in Kenya. And because when you were younger, your dad was Admiral in the Navy and you spent some of your time in Portsmouth, which is actually where I grew up, which is a really lovely connection to here. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, any child of, of a service family is potentially used to change and upheaval and moving on. And I think actually it's quite a good life skill to have to be used to change because nothing stays the same. And I think our ability to adapt and cope with change is a really good indicator of resilience. And it's something that you know, we can all learn, I think, and and embrace. Particularly, I think, brand founders, entrepreneurs, you have to be used to change and be prepared to change um, because sometimes you have to quickly. And I think the last few years have probably been a great example of that. Yeah, absolutely. I actually couldn't agree with that more, especially with a lot of people having to pivot with COVID. And you really have done that as an entrepreneur yourself. You know, you have revolutionized the well-being sector and forever changed that connection between beauty and health and nutrition. And I love this next chapter that you're embarking on. And I'd love to just delve a bit deeper into really where it all started, because did you kind of have a background within your family? Was there a lot of health and wellness segregated in that? Because when I started studying nutrition, which was 10 years ago, Nutrition wasn't even spoken about and, you know, organic beauty care and plant oils and all of these things that are very beneficial for your house in a holistic way was still quite new. So I'm quite fascinated, really. Was this part of your childhood growing up or was this something that you kind of came to through your own health worries or intuition? Like, how did this come about, this interest in wellness? I think it's a bit of both, if I'm really honest. So I guess going back, my first memory, I guess, of really being switched on by beauty particularly was when my grandmother gave me a book. I think it was my first ever hardback book. It was incredibly glamorous at the time. I think I was aged about 12. And it was the Vogue book of beauty. And it had amazing pictures of people like Jerry Hall and Mary Helvin and extraordinary, amazing women making themselves up and sticking cucumber slices on their eyes. And I was completely transfixed by this. I thought this was mesmerizing. And my father, as you say, was in the Navy and he used to travel and be away a lot, but his sanctuary was always at home in the garden. He would come back and maybe it was his way of being grounded. You know, he would he would plant things. He's a very very practical man. So he would plant plants that do things or plants that you can eat. And, you know, everything had to have a purpose. And I would kind of reconnect with him when he came back from sea by hanging out with him in the garden, planting beans or picking lettuce and that kind of thing. And it was really, I guess, so much of life for all of us is chance and circumstance. And I went to London. I went to college. I actually went to catering college. I studied hotel management and catering operations, same college as Jamie Oliver and Westminster in London. 
only really because I couldn't think of anything else to do. And I quite fancied the course because it taught things like wine appreciation. So I thought, well, that's got to be a good subject to study. (laughs) (laughs) All in the name of education. That's perfect. (laughs) While I was there, I was quite broke. So I got a job as a house model. I had very long hair back then. And I got a, a job as a house model for a very small, unknown hairdressers called Moulton Brown in South Moulton Street which was right next door to Vidal Sassoon. And Vidal Sassoon was doing all the really kind of trendy, very sharp, geometric haircuts and blunt hairstyles and had become you know, really big, obviously, in the 60s and, and 70s. And Moulton Brown were the antithesis of that. They didn't even have hair dryers. You know, it was all hand-dried hair and it was, you know, making buckets of nettle shampoo in the corridor. It was, it was really extraordinary. I mean, this was a time when Anita Roddick was starting the body shop down in Little Hampton, And I got this job basically modeling their hair curlers called Molten Browners because I had really long hair. And I remember that the owners said to me one day, you know, okay, Liz, you know, what are you going to do when you leave college? And I thought, well, don't really know. I haven't really thought about it. And they said, well, we're starting to make shampoos and things. And, you know, we can always use an extra pair of hands. Why don't you come and work with us full time? So that was how I got my first job. And they were very entrepreneurial. They were beginning to start making natural beauty products. And South Moulton Street in those days was full of small independent boutiques. You had brands, the fashion, amazing fashion outlet run by Mrs. Burstein and as Mrs. B to everybody who was bringing in designers. She was discovering people like John Galliano and Donna Karen. And, you know, it was an incredibly exciting time. Looking back on it, I didn't appreciate it then. I just thought, oh, this is normal, you know. But back then, it it really was. It was a special place. And a lot of top hair and makeup people came out of Moulton Brown, actually. Anyway, one day, I'd been with them for probably about 18 months or so, two years. And I was in the press office covering for their press officer. And I picked up the phone and a journalist was on the call asking me all these questions about the shampoos and about products. And and for me, that was a light bulb moment. I suddenly realized that I wanted to be the person at the other end of the phone asking the questions. I wanted to be a beauty journalist. And so I knew a few beauty editors, obviously, who I'd connected with through being at Moulton Brown. And I said, listen, if ever you hear of a job, you know, you must let me know because I literally I'll come in, I'll make tea, I'll do anything. And luckily, one day a job came up with a glossy magazine called Woman's Journal, which sadly no longer exists. It was a great monthly magazine. And Laurie Purden, who had been the editor-in-chief of Good Housekeeping, amazing doyenne of the magazine world, she was editing it. And Vicky Bentley, who is an amazing beauty editor, she I worked with her as her deputy, her assistant, and kind of learned how to write and was given little snippets and just so loved it. And then talking about well-being, back then, I mean, we're going back now 35 years. And the landscape, as you said, was very different. And certainly in the magazine world, you know, you had your cookery editor who was baking sponge cakes and you had your fashion editor who was, you know, featuring lovely elasticated waistband skirts and beauty editors who were talking about lipsticks and perfumes and things. And then you had your health editor who was doing all the medical doctor stuff. And then suddenly this well-being thing emerged and you had all these people called nutritionists and naturopaths and reflexologists and 
and crystal healing and, you know, what on earth, you know, is all of this? And the magazine realized that they had to cover it, but they didn't really had any, have anybody in mind who they could send out to talk to all these weird and wacky people. So they said, I know, we'll send the new girl, Liz, you know, she can go and talk to these people and, and write about it. And, you know, for me, again, it was another light bulb. I absolutely so connected with the idea that we can influence how we look, how we feel by the way we live or the nutrients that we ingest or the exercise that we do or the complementary therapies that we take part in. And I started writing about it for the magazine and and loved it so much. I quite quickly moved on and started writing books because I just loved the the whole research and, and the whole philosophy and being able to learn from some of the people who really were, were cutting edge. I mean, I don't consider myself an expert at all. I'm a communicator. I'm somebody who goes and talks to the experts. And, and it was a, an amazing time to be there. But that is also a real skill to have because a lot of experts find it very hard to relate to the evidence that they're conveying into tangible information that everybody can understand. And to be that communicator, you have to also understand what that expert is trying to say to make that understandable for everyone. And so that is actually a really incredible skill. And it shows that from 35 books (laughs) that you've written. (laughs) I don't think I've ever read that on a podcast. I mean, that's extraordinary. (laughs) 35 books. I love writing. I I wish I had more time for writing, actually. It's probably one of of the things that I miss most is, is that I get so caught up now in social media, which of course never existed before. You know, 35 years ago, I, I was, we didn't even have the internet. And my kids say to me, they go, Mommy, how on earth did you write a book with no, with no internet? I mean, how did you look anything up? How did you use spell check? Yeah, exactly. I mean, where did you get all the studies from? So I said, do you know, I used to go and sit in this thing called a library. And they have all these books and all these reference materials. And I used to go to the British Library and, you know, call up academic papers and journals. And then I'd go and see people. I'd do that old-fashioned thing of picking up a phone and saying, can I come and talk to you about this piece of research? And I say that now to my team, you know, my young magazine team. I say, please don't rely on the University of Google because so much of what we read is wrong or it's poorly interpreted. And the number of times I connect with an academic and, you know, I'll see something in the press and, and I'll contact them and say, you know, can we talk about this? And they say, well, thank goodness that you've called me because actually the headline was completely wrong and they totally misrepresented the data. And actually what the study found was this, you know, when you actually talk to somebody and get them to, to go through it, or you find out whether it was statistically significant and what the trials were. And, you know, you, you learn so much from actually going back to source rather than relying on second or third hand. But these days, everything is so fast and newspapers, you know, need they want to be the first with the news. So they just repeat and regurgitate press releases, which might not necessarily be accurate. And, and by the time they come to print retractions, it's too late because the headlines have been splashed all over the world. Yeah, that is one of my biggest bugbearers, I have to say, is reading poorly misinformed information. And it's something that I'm really excited to talk to you about, actually, about going on to our next chapter, which we'll definitely come on to throughout this podcast. So you started writing, you absolutely loved it, you were obviously very good at it. And then from the magazine, how did you then make it onto television? Because I think there was a transition, wasn't there, with Richard and Judy that happened, which obviously, sadly, is no longer obviously still going on. But back in the days when this was on daytime TV, how did you make that transition from writing to being on daytime TV? 
Well, again, a lot of it is down to good fortune and circumstance. So I was getting a little bit of a name for myself in the magazine world. And obviously, I, you know, I had my byline on various things. And I was actually doing a, a bit of fashion styling as well at the time to make ends meet. I was working as a freelance stylist. And I just literally had a call one day from a producer up in Liverpool, which is where the show used to come from, the Albert Dock, from Granada. And they said, can I speak to Lizelle? And I said, yeah, hi. You know, I'm, I'm calling from Granada Television. We're starting this, this brand new thing called daytime television. And I remember thinking, oh my goodness, that will never work. You know, who's going to sit and watch television in the morning? I mean, that's just, you know, we've all got lives to live and things to do. So, which just shows you, never ask me about trends because, you know, what do I know? Hearing this from myself, though, is fascinating. It's just kind of hearing that daytime TV did not exist. <laughs> it did not exist, literally. If you talk to anybody of, you know, my age in their 50s, and they will say, absolutely, you know, you had you had three channels. This was before Channel 4. BBC 2, you got the test card, so there was nothing. BBC 1, you might get a bit of racing from Newmarket, maybe if you were lucky. I can't quite remember what was on I mean, there used to be some program called House Party, I remember, which I used to really love when I used to skive off school. I used to sit and watch House Party in the morning. That was on ITV, I think. Um, but yeah, so the whole concept of daytime television with Richard and Judy was brand new. And they said, we're looking for a fashion person. So I said, oh, yeah, I can do that, you know, because you obviously say yes to everything. When everybody asks you, can you do this? You go, yeah, of course I can. And then you go and swat up on it. So I thought, well, that sounds quite interesting, you know, and I was was really tired. I'd actually just finished a very big job for Austin Reed. I was um, helping style one of their catalogues. And I'd been working really hard. We were filming it in an aircraft hangar, I think, out in Hounslow or somewhere. And I'd had to do, as every fashion stylist knows, you get, you know, you have to lug all the props and press everything and pack them all up and I was exhausted and they said well come to Liverpool and we'll have a chat so I thought that's great it's a four and a half hour train journey so I got on the train in the morning I was due up at lunchtime and I fell asleep on the train and which was fine because the end stop was Liverpool Lime Street so it didn't matter I knew that I could get off at the end wasn't going to miss the stop walked across the road to Granada Studios, which is an Albert Dock, which if anybody's been there, you'll know that it's a very imposing building. It's a huge atrium. And they used to do the news. I don't know if they still do, but Granada News used to come live from there. And you walk in and there's TV cameras and remote sort of robotically controlled because the gallery is kind of hidden behind screens. Anyway, the producer ran up to me. It was just before one o'clock. He said, listen, great that you're here. We're just doing the one o'clock news and then we'll do your screen test. And I remember that awful feeling in my stomach. You know, when your stomach, you get some really, really bad news and you know something's about to go very badly wrong. And I thought, a screen test. And he said, yeah, yeah. Didn't you get the note? We're going to ask you, you know, just to talk for a few minutes about your views on British fashion and where it's going and trends. And I remember thinking, oh, shit, excuse my language. You know, I've been asleep on a train for four and a half hours. I could have been thinking of the most insightful, brilliant things to say, completely unprepared. I mean, fashion wasn't actually my thing anyway. I was thinking, I was like, wow, that was not beauty. It was fashion. Yeah. Yeah. So fashion kind of got me in because I had been doing some work as a fashion stylist. So I thought, well, I, I can either back out or I can just go with it, you know, make a fool of myself and go home. So I sat down and I was absolutely, I mean, beyond nervous. I'd never sat in front of a camera before. And there were the news camera crew there. And I remember them saying, right, okay, right, now you're on. So I burbled something about, I can't even remember what, you know, 
I think brown was the new black at the time, I think. So I think I talked about that. Afterwards, uh, I was just kind of getting ready to go and the producer came out and he said, Liz, he said, he said, that was fantastic. He said, that was so natural. It was like you hadn't prepared anything and it was just so spontaneous. And that's exactly what we want because that's what daytime television is all about. It's not about people reading the news. He said, everybody else has come here with a script and has been, you know, like they're putting on an act, but we want people who can just sit and chat because you're in somebody's sitting room they're on the sofa, they're in the kitchen, and it's just like chatting to a friend. So they said, that's the really good news. And they said, the bad news is that we've just hired a fashion consultant who obviously had a lot more fashion experience than me. But he said, but we really like you. So is there anything else that you can do? So I said, well, actually, to be honest, I do kind of beauty and well-being a lot better than I do fashion. And he said, oh, that's interesting. We'd never thought about that. Why don't you come and do that then? And so I ended up being on this morning two or three times a week for four years. And that was how I got there. (laughs) Wow. Wow. I love it. It went in with fashion and it came out with beauty and it stuck for four years. (laughs) That is amazing. And I loved it. And Rich and Judy were fabulous. And I used to, to go up to Liverpool and, you know, it was baptism by fire. You were just chucked in at the deep end with live television. I remember saying to Richard on my very first day, I said, you know, what's the delay? Supposing I make a real hash of it, you know, how long have I got before I can recover, you know, to kind of cut it out and do, the, do it again? And he just looked at me and he said, sweetheart, there's never a delay. This is live. And it really focuses the mind. And, and even to this day, which is why I love doing my Instagram lives, for example, I love live television. I mean, I still do this morning. <laughs> after all these years, after, you know, 32 years, I'm still there, having had a detour, you know, off on BBC and doing other things. But I always prefer live television. I think it's much more authentic. People can't change what you say. They can't edit you. If somebody misrepresents what you've said or they miss here, you can say, no, no, actually, I don't mean that. What I mean to say is this. And so, you know, for me, live television, live radio is always, is always preferable. For this episode, we have partnered with Hugh Kitchen, a brand who I first fell in love with when I lived in Manhattan, New York. I remember walking to Union Square where Hugh Kitchen had their main cafe. This is when my first interest in nutrition was starting. If you haven't heard of Hugh before, they're relatively new to the UK and they have brought their chocolate goodness here in the last six months. If you love chocolate like me, you are in for a treat. I struggle not to finish off a whole bar in one sitting, especially if I'm around their dark chocolate with almond butter and crispy quinoa. It is my Achilles heel. Q Kitchen are fair trade and organic. So it's nice to know that you're supporting a business that cares both about its consumers and where they get their ingredients from. They are vegan and paleo, and they are not full of any artificial sweeteners. And here is the big one. You can pronounce all the ingredients on the ingredients list. At the moment, Q Kitchen is only available in Whole Foods and Planet Organic, but you can buy it online at www.qkitchen.com qkitchen.co.uk and they've given me a discount code BWELL20 for 20% off all purchases. I'd really recommend their almond butter chocolate. It is my favourite by far but let me know what you think once you've tried it. 
They have a large variety of different flavours and I'd love to know what yours is. Whether it's the salty dark chocolate, the hazel butter dark chocolate, the almond butter, which is my favourite, with crispy quinoa, cashew butter and raspberry, or cashew butter with pure vanilla bean, you will be spoiled for choice. It is fascinating to hear the story of how you started creating the brand. And it sounds to me also, and I think this is something really important for anyone starting a journey as a brand or as an entrepreneur, that you start following your intuition and things that you love. And it sounded like, you know, you were really interested, first of all, in wine. And then that quickly deterred <laughs> when you started working at Muggs and Brown and started being really interested in the beauty side. And then all of a sudden you're like, I really enjoy writing. I'm going to go and work for a magazine. So you're following your heart as opposed to your your head of saying, well, maybe I should be doing this at this age. And then all of a sudden you've taken a chance on a show and then you land on something that you've never thought of before, but being a presenter on TV talking about something that you're very passionate about. So you've created these amazing values of a brand quite early on. But then how do you make this transition with co-founding a skincare company with Kim Buckland, if I'm right? How did this then come around? Because it sounds that you kind of had, you know, your life was quite mapped out and the things that you loved and you enjoyed. And then all of a sudden you start the startup company. So that was a really interesting journey. And I guess if we go back to the story, so I was was working on daytime TV. I went from this morning to the BBC, did the first ever show on beauty called Beauty Wise, which came out of Pebble Mill in Birmingham. Then I went to GMTV, spent many years early morning working with Lorraine and Eamon and Anthea, and then had my own show in the afternoon called Lizard's Lifestyle on ITV which was filmed in my house in Putney. It was kind of like a well-being big brother. Supermodels like Linda Evangelista in my bathroom and unknown chefs like Gordon Ramsay cooking in the kitchen. I loved that show. I mean, it was kind of slightly ahead of its time maybe. Um, So I was doing all of that. And then my girlfriend, Kim Buckland, who's one of my oldest friends, she and I had worked together at Moulton Brown. So it kind of goes back to that early story. And she'd gone off and she had worked in the beauty industry. She had run John Frieda Haircare. She's a brilliant product marketeer, extremely good on supply, logistics, putting products into bottles. And she saw this gap in the market and she said, you know, listen, Liz, you, you know, you know about skin and beauty. Women trust you. They see you on TV. They know you. And why don't you do what all the hairdressers are doing? So people like John Frieda and Trevor Sorby and Daniel Galvin and Charles Worthington. And, you know, all these people had their own expertise and they were bringing out new hair care lines. And no one was really doing that with skincare back in 1995. The market was very different. It was very polarized. You had big skincare brands like Helena Rubinstein and Elizabeth Arden and Estee Lauder. You know, these were all real women, but mostly long dead and not particularly relevant, and selling products from behind a counter, which was quite scary to have to go up and confront a consultant. Or you went to self-selection, you went and bought Pons or Nivea or Oil of Ule, as it was back then, Ole now, from a, you know, from a pharmacist or a chemist or a supermarket. There was nothing really in the middle. And she said, listen, you know, we could do this together. You confront it and bring all your expertise and knowledge, and I can do all the marketing and logistics, and uh, and we can do something and create this 
reasonably priced but incredibly good skincare range. And to be perfectly honest with you, my first reaction was no. I said, you know, I can't possibly do that because I'm a journalist, I'm impartial. That would be kind of gamekeeper turned poacher. And, you know, I'm doing my TV work, I'm writing books. And, and she said, no, 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 it'll be great. Trust me, we'll just do it as a kind of side hustle, you know, famous last words. So anyway, so we joined forces. I mean, talk about, you know, side hustle. We built it, the two of us, into what was at the time, I think, Britain's biggest independent beauty brand before selling it back in 2010. It was a steam train. We stepped on it and it just shot off. And it meant that everything else I was doing had to stop. I didn't have time to do TV. I couldn't write any books. I couldn't do anything, actually, other than focus on the business in hand. And it was unbelievably exciting and incredibly rewarding. You know, we won so many awards and we opened up in the States and we, you know, we created one of the first websites because of course the dot-com boom happened. We launched on QVC when home shopping started. We became the biggest selling brand on home shopping. It was just extraordinary, an amazing journey. And I learned a huge amount that I would never otherwise have learned. But actually, ultimately, it was not my first love. My absolute passion is wellness and well-being and helping people, particularly women, midlife women, look well and feel well. And I just had to get back to that. We decided to sell the brand in 2010. And I stayed on for a bit. I think it's often hard for a brand founder to stay, particularly when you're owned by a big multinational organization. It's a little bit of a square peg in a round hole. So we parted company completely. And I don't have any connection at all to the beauty brand now, but I love seeing it. I take it's owned by Boots now and I walk past Boots and I see it in the windows and things. Or I go to somebody's house and they've got, you know, the hand wash on the basin or whatever. And, you know, that gives me a real thrill because it's, you know, it was always my baby. I guess it's like having a child that grows up and leaves home and, you know, you love watching what they do, but, you know, you're no longer in charge of their life. It's interesting as well because it's one of those very few brands that has your name on it. And so that is even more of a heart pull because that is your name on a brand, similar to Jo Malone, where her name was on her brand when she left. And navigating that, I mean, it sounds like a real journey. And obviously you had children during that. Many. Balancing that all. <laughs> how? Yeah. Is there five? Yeah, there are five to date. That's it. No more. Yeah. <laughs> how did you manage to launch a startup? And obviously sell and go global. Being a woman, I can imagine from being a female founder myself, how was that navigating that through the industry? Being a woman, first of all, so coming up against a lot of men and also like adversities that you might have faced and also trying to juggle a family life. I mean, there's a lot there that you had to take on. I think one of the things that I always say to young entrepreneurs, because I don't do it anymore, but I used to do quite a lot of mentoring and was involved with the Prince's Trust and various other charities that help young people get started in business. And I always say, if you're going to link with somebody, make sure they're on the same page as you, and particularly in life. So Kim and I, we knew each other really well. We were really good friends. We trusted each other implicitly, like sisters. And we both had small children, so we understood the pressures. And we would, you know, get up, do the school run, work all through the day. We'd stop at three o'clock, both of us. We'd go and do the school pickup, tea bath and bed, all of that. And then we'd pick up again at seven in the evening. And we both understood that. And, you know, I didn't ever have to deal with a business partner saying, 
well, what do you mean it's quarter past three and you have to go? Well, what do you mean you can't make the board meeting because it's sports day? So those kind of things really helped. And in terms of female sort of hurdles to overcome, I think two things. Firstly, working in beauty, it does tend to be a female-focused industry. And the industries that I've chosen to work in, you know, publishing and beauty, and to a certain extent, wellness, have a high percentage of women entrepreneurs. And so it's it's kind of much, it's a much more level playing field. It's not like, you know, I was going into insurance in the city or something, which, you know, it has, you know, that notorious glass ceiling to smash through. But we did at the beginning because there weren't really such things when we started out. Nobody talked about entrepreneurship or brand founders or startups. I mean, this is a new language. And so we got the reaction of, well, what do you mean you're two young women who who want to make beauty products? I mean, we don't really understand this. And, you know, why don't you just sort of run away and play shops and, and leave it to the big guys? And we knocked on many, many doors looking for people who would work with us to make formulations. And eventually, there was an amazing company up in Lancashire that Kim had worked with actually at John Frieda. And they knew Kim and they knew that she could do it. And they'd seen the success of John and his range, which went from very, very small to obviously massive. You know, so there was a heritage there. And he said, you know what, I'm going to give you some lab time. I'll give you some bench time. You come and talk to our technicians. And I, you know, I wrote down on literally kind of on a scrap of paper, what I wanted cleanse and polish to look like, what I wanted it to contain. And I just come back actually from doing some filming for the BBC. I was over at Harvard at Tufts University and I was interviewing some of the medics there about antioxidants. One of the books I was writing at the time was about antioxidants. And we were looking at the different levels of efficacy of vitamin E and the fact that natural source vitamin E, D-alpha tocopherol, works so much better on the skin than the synthetic acetate form. And so, you know, I was able to say things like, well, I want to use the natural form of vitamin E in this product. And they said, well, nobody uses that because it's just so much more expensive. And I said, yeah, but I'm going to use this on my face. So can we please use that? And that's what I love about being a founder is that you do get the opportunity to say, actually, no, do you know what? We're going to do it this way. And that's how we started, really. And and I remember going to trade shows years afterwards and passing the stands of some of the companies that had turned us down. And it's a bit like that moment, you know, that moment, Julia Roberts in Pretty Woman, when she goes down Rodeo Drive and the shop assistants are really rude to her and very dismissive. And then she goes back with this kind of big wad of cash and it's like, big mistake. <laughs> and right him. up until until the day we <laughs> sold the company, we still used the same manufacturer who grew with us and was able to, you know, buy buildings and labs and employ, you know, dozens more people as a result of our success. So it's always teamwork, isn't it? You have to choose the right partners and you stay with them and, and be loyal to the people that help you along the way. And, and it's about building strong relationships always. And also, it sounds about core values because even though you are a founder and you're, you're saying, well, I want that organic vitamin E on my face, it's very easy when you're maybe not from a business background and obviously this wasn't kind of your dream to always have this. You ended up embarking from this from an amazing brand that you created. For someone to say, well, actually, no, Liz, do you know what? For finance reasons and for ease, let's just not do that because actually, listen to me, I know what I'm talking about. Whereas you had these strong core values where you're like, no, that's not what I want to do. And I want to work with somebody who understands that. 
I think ultimately there is real value in having your name on the tin. You mentioned sort of brand founders who do put their name out there and, and there are pros and cons always. And there is a downside, clearly, but there's also an upside. But one of the things it's very focusing because you are ultimately responsible, even though obviously when we sold the brand, it was you know not purely my decision with many stakeholders and Kim and I were equal partners. So, but everybody says, oh, you know, you sold your brand. And actually, well, it kind of wasn't really like that because there were very many of us involved. And ultimately though, people will say the buck stops with you and you're responsible, and it's your fault if it goes wrong or it doesn't work. That is a very crisp way to focus the mind. (laughs) And ultimately, you want to do things well. And, you know, it's like now having a magazine with my name on it. Every word in that magazine needs to reflect what I think and believe to be true. And that's a massive responsibility. You know, if it was just called well-being then you could probably get away with a few bits and pieces and say, yeah, well, that's a bit of artistic license or yeah, that was written by a contributor or whatever. But it's Liz Earle well-being. And that means that I have to stand by it. So it, it is an added pressure, but hopefully there's an element of trust that comes with that as well. Well, I definitely think there is because looking at what you've created, you know, you really did pioneer this brand into sustainable, organic, doing something good, impact. I mean, these are values that today sound normal. Most brands are wanting to be sustainable, wanting to have a social impact, wanting to be organic. Don't mind about being this top tier luxury because everybody wants that. But going back to when this was launching, and that was not the buzzword. That was not what every brand did. So I think the reason why people have this trust with you is because you were one of the first people to lead this. And that is actually quite frightening, I would say, because actually you don't know that people are going to spend more on your product because actually you're using higher quality ingredients. And I think you had, it was yourself and there was obviously the body shop that had these two kind of, you know, wanted to create impact and do good out there. But actually there is an easy way out. And when everyone else is doing it, it's quite easy to follow that lead. Yeah, I think there's some interesting things that you raise there. Certainly when we started, for example, being green was just a colour on a shade chart. It wasn't a political party. It wasn't a statement. Nobody asked us about our carbon footprint or our CSR or our sustainability policies. I mean, it just wasn't there in the lexicon to be asked. And we just did it because we felt instinctively it was the right thing to do. And, you know, we gave back to charities. We linked up with women's cooperatives in a similar way to the body shop with with Anita, with what she was doing. We wanted to be organic as much as we could and sustainable, but, you know, sometimes using synthetics when they're the more sustainable option. So, you know, it always has to be very well reasoned. And, you know, I feel sorry in a way for some of the big corporations because you can't reinvent your history, You know, my history is very transparent. I've been doing this for a long time. And, you know, you can buy books I've written, even if they're out of print, you know, you can still find them from 35 years ago. And I still stand by the majority of what's in there. You know, I was writing about fats and oils in the diet, for example, when actually it was counterculture because everyone was saying, well, we need to eat low fat. And actually, you know, sugar's fine, but fat's the real baddie. And I was saying, well, no, actually, guys, you know, it needs to be organic, low sugar, low carb, high fat. 
And I was threatened with legal action by, you know, daring to suggest that a hydrogenated, trans, fat-filled margarine spread with a yellow flower on its package was in some way potentially hazardous to health. And of course, now the packages all say, no, trans fats. And no, of course, we're not, you know, hydrogenated and, we, you know, we don't use palm oil and all of these things. So I guess I was fortunate to be in the right place at the right time and hopefully on the right side of history. But you also have to be prepared to hold your hand up when things aren't right and say, actually, do you know what? I thought that at the time because that was based on the available information, but now, you know, we've moved on. But interestingly, a lot of the things that I was writing about that weren't as evidence-based have now been proven by science. I'm fascinated by nutrigenomics, for example, and looking at, you know, things like St. John's work and how they affect the genetic pathways to create serotonin and dopamine. Well, I mean, herbalists have used St. John's work for centuries, if not millennia. And now we can hack into our genes and our gene expressions and see how those substances are working. So is this going to be the next book? It might be part of it. It might be part of it. Actually, you know what? One of the reasons I'm here in Kenya is I was supposed to be having some downtime to, to think about the next book. I need to get cracking because I've only got a couple more weeks here and I think my agent's expecting me to come back with something. (laughs) Don't tell her that. (laughs) Haven't we just made it now? (laughs) I would love to read one about that. What I also think you should do is look through all your 35 books and where the research has been proven and bring it all together. I think that would be fascinating to actually see now what is proven. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, I'm not, I don't know that I'm as much of a pioneer, actually, as you make me out to be, because even when I started 35 years ago, there were people who were really trailblazing. And, you know, I have just followed the work of a lot of academics and researchers and hopefully tried to bring that more into the mainstream, I guess, because my background is daytime television and it, it is quite mainstream. I mean, I've never been particularly fashionable, for example, and I'm no good on trends because that's kind of not who I am. I'm quite middle of the road. I'd kind of go the middle path. I do believe in some fundamentals that I stick to, but I'm not really into fads and I do like everything to be evidence-based and, and to make sure that it really works. I wouldn't say that kind of saying a pioneer is too much because it's very hard, one, to put your face to it and very hard to communicate that. One person might have a research project and they are trailblazing in that sector, but it's very hard to make that digestible and to put your name onto it and communicate it and write it and create a product and stick by these core values. I mean, I think that is a definition of, to me, what a pioneer would be. And I think that's exactly what you have done. And in 2010, you made that decision, as you said, with Kim and other people within Lazelle to say, actually, we're going to step back and start the next chapter. The next chapter was going back to your roots, I guess, going back to becoming that personality again, doing the things that you loved and that you enjoyed. And now we've got the Lizelle well-being, which you've mentioned a few times through this interview. Can you tell me a bit about actually how you came to that decision actually to incorporate it all back into a magazine again and really where it first started like what does this embody and I guess you're the editor-in-chief in it so what are you trying to portray through Lizelle Wellbeing? 
Well, when the beauty company was sold, I knew that I was kind of too young and interested in the world to kind of just go and sit under a tree for the rest of my life. And I was really itching to get back into the world of well-being. And I signed a three-book deal with a publisher and I wrote about skin because that's what they wanted me to write about. That wasn't what I wanted to write about, but that was kind of the first deal. And I said, well, that's fine, but the next book has to be about gut health because that's fascinating and you know everything relating to the skin comes back from gut health and then the third book was on menopause because that was also something that I felt wasn't really being discussed I was back in the world of books and I had a, a website there's our well-being website because I thought well let's you know put some stuff online so that people can have free access to it and I remember saying to my daughter Lily who was very techie still is very techie she works in beauty tech now I, you know, I'd love to do a download that people could get for Christmas because I think Christmas is a time of family and feasting and actually you can have a fantastic well-being Christmas. And I've got lots of family traditions from, you know, making botanical tree decorations to suet-free mincemeat and, you know, all this stuff that, you know, I've been doing for years. And, and with my kids growing up and leaving home and going to uni, I kind of wanted to do something that they could have, if I was honest. If I write this, can you make it a download? She said, yeah, no, sure. You know, I said, well, can we put it in the Apple store? Because that would be really, really cool to do that. And she said, yeah, I'm sure we can. So she came back and she said, well, the good news is that, you know, we can get it in the Apple store. But the bad news is that they don't do one-offs. You have to do four minimum. It has to be four in a year. So I said, okay, well, what happens if we don't do four? And she said, well, that's fine. You could just cancel it. So I said, okay, well, let's do that then. Let's do a Christmas Lizard Wellbeing, like a magazine. Everyone can download from the Apple Store and then we can just cancel it and it'll just be a one-off. So I thought that's great. So that's what we did. And what we hadn't realized is that when we set it up, we set it up as a four-issue subscription in the Apple Store. And when we did our kind of numbers in January, it had sold really well. And then Lily said, oh, but you do realize that people are expecting three more. I said, oh, I guess we could, we could either give everybody their money back <laughs> or we could do three more. So I thought, actually, do you know, it'd be quite fun to do spring because you've got lots of feasting. There's Valentine's Day and Mother's Day and Easter and it's, you know, spring cleaning and detox and all those lovely things. We did a spring issue. And then we were thinking, yeah, we could do a summer one. That'd be fun. And then the next thing happened, which was because my audience tends to be midlife women, I guess, like me. They said, you know, Liz, it's all very well. You know, we love this. It's great content. But what we really want is we really want it in print. And I was like, oh, my goodness. I thought print was dead. You know, I thought no one was reading magazines. You're all supposed to be reading screens online. So we then had to make the decision that we would reverse engineer it into print. And we tried really hard to find a printer and a distributor because you can get things printed quite easily. But actually to get distribution in the magazine world is really hard. It's controlled by the big giants. You've got Hearst, you've got Condé Nast. It's a very difficult market to break into. And so we'd created this really lovely magazine and it was in the beginning of May. I remember it really clearly. And we just couldn't find somebody to distribute it. And we were about to pull the plug. And I went to a friend's party. A friend of mine has a house in the south of France. And she said, I'm having a, a big birthday, um, special birthday party. Will you come? And I've got a few friends coming. And I said, that'd be lovely because, you know, work's driving me a bit mad at the moment. So I went and I sat next to a guy at dinner the first night. 
And we got chatting and I said, you know, kind of, you know, what do you do or whatever? He said, oh, I'm chairman of various different companies. And I thought, oh, you know, you're obviously a big cheese. I said, which company do you enjoy being chairman of most? And he said, you know, I've just taken on the chairmanship of this small magazine printing and distribution firm based in Norwich. And I said, really? That's very interesting. Can we talk? So we then got together the next day and I explained this Uh, what was going on with me. And he said, sure. He said, I'll connect you with my team. We can print it. We can distribute it. And that was Archant, which was a great small publishing firm and who we were with for a number of years. And they they got us started. And then we actually got picked up by the big boys. And then we were distributed by Hearst, which was extraordinary, going into the big buildings of Hearst, where I'd been as a baby journalist, to suddenly see Lizelle Wellbeing kind of next to Good Housekeeping and Elle and... Harpers and Queen and, you know, Red and all of that. Um, so we were published by them for a while. Now we, we wow. do it all ourselves. So you really have gone back to full circle, but you just came in back as chief editor. <laughs> I mean, what a journey. I love it. And we, we were quarterly to start with. We're now bi-monthly. So every other month and people say, oh, we you know, will you go monthly? And I say, absolutely not. I think it would kill me. I think bi-monthly is good. You've got two months to read a beautiful magazine. And, you know, so they don't kind of pile up on red on the side, which is what usually happens to my magazines. And then we actually came out of retail at the beginning of COVID. We had a big financial hit because we just printed an issue and it had gone into all the supermarkets and we were with Hearst at the time. And so they they were brilliant. We were in Waitrose and Marks and Spencers and Sainsbury's and Smith's and, you know, all of those outlets. But of course, if you remember the beginning of lockdown, everything shut. And unless you were an essential food item, you were just cordoned off behind black and yellow hazard tape as being, you know, incredibly dangerous, being time sensitive material with, with a publication. We just ended up having to pulp you know, to 60,000 copies, which was devastating. And then we risked that happening again with the next issue. And so we had a big emergency summit at work and we said, what are we going to do? You know, are we going to stop being in print because we just can't afford this? And we said, actually, do you know what? We're just going to go subscription only. So now we do print, but we literally print the number of copies that people want and we we send it out directly. And that actually works really well. It's much more sustainable. There's no wastage. There's no pulping. There's no lorries on the road. You know, people can have it delivered through their letterbox and it's hopefully protected should we ever, God forbid, have to go into another lockdown. Let's hope you're not thinking about that. But I think the one thing that I'm really keen to ask after hearing your story and to where you are now is you've obviously had so many incredible highs and you've grasped opportunities but there's also been some lows some panic points some times of immediate pivoting of thinking I've got made all of this as your own magazine again and I've got into Hearst and I'm incredibly proud of myself and oh wait hang on a minute now I've got to stop And that gut-wrenching feeling that many people can have, the fear that can stop so many people from carrying on. How do you navigate that? Because I think that is something that many people can become so afraid of that they worry to start over again or worry about making that change. That's a really interesting question. And I think in a way it kind of feeds back into the very first question about change, about being able to manage change. And one of the things that I've noticed through my various business lives is when a business is successful and grows, it changes. 
And you need to have people with you that can cope with change. And some people can cope with change and some can't. And it can be very challenging and scary. And I remember with my daughter, it was actually at the beginning of lockdown, Lily was with me. And we just heard that we were having to pulp 60,000 issues. And there was a ban on paper importation. And we might not be able to print the next magazine. And I had to stay up all night to talk to printers in Italy and just try and think of who I could talk to that would help us. And she, you know, she was kind of head in hands going, oh, my goodness, mommy, I don't know. How do you cope with this? How how do you make it work? And I said, listen, it's never easy. If it was easy, everyone would do it. So I think what you have to understand as an entrepreneur is you have to be prepared that it's not going to be easy. And if it's not your absolute passion, then please don't do it. Because if it's not something that, you know, is going to get you up at three in the morning to sort out an issue. You know, you do have to take risks. You know, I've had to take big financial risks in the past. And, you know, it's all very well when things go well, people sort of forget that actually, you know, it's the entrepreneur who's, you know, your neck is on the line. And, you know, for people who do well, you know, some people say, oh, it's all very well for them. But you, you often forget the early days and the risk. But having said that, it's never one person either. It's always a team. You know, I've got the most fantastic mm-hmm. team. Some of the people I work with now actually work with me at the Lizelle Beauty Company and have come with me. And, you know, there, there's real strength in that and people I love and trust. And it's not easy. I, I'd be lying if I said it was easy. But if it's your passion... That kind of sees you through. And I think if you accept that, you know, the wheels will fall off from time to time. And there's that awful expression, isn't there, that something isn't a problem, it's an opportunity. And I hate that because, you know, we do have problems in life. And I say to them, it's a bloody problem, okay? (laughs) I know we can turn this into an opportunity, but right now (laughs) it's doing my head in and I need to find a way to sort it out. But there is inevitably a way to sort things out. And they say it'll all be all right in the end. And if it's not all right, then it's not the end. I'm a believer in that. I think, you know, obviously things happen that you can't control, especially in the last few years. We've seen so much of that, haven't we? But positivity is key and adapting and finding ways to make your passion a reality in whatever form. And it may be that you have to redo things. You know, we had to stop our relationship with Hearst, which I loved. Frankly, I love the fact I could walk into Hearst and see Lizelle Wellbeing sitting next to Good Housekeeping. That gave me a real thrill. And we don't have that anymore because we now self-publish. But that was the best way to keep it going and to make it happen. So that's what we did. Not being scared of change, I think, is pivotal to any entrepreneur, to any founder, but also just to anybody who is not even on an entrepreneurial journey. I think change generally is actually a really positive attribute to take from this episode, I think, because I think change can immediately provoke fear but actually change sometimes is the best thing that we can do for ourselves and give ourselves a new outlook and take a step back as you've just done by going to Kenya and looking at your next book which I'm very excited to hear what that's going to be about I'd love to hear that too actually I'm still working on that one well we have just done a short brainstorm we can carry on after I mean, I feel like you're a woman who's never going to just say, go and sit by a tree and I'm done and I'm finished. I think you're always 
as any entrepreneur or as anybody who follows their passion, because you love this, you want to wake up, it gets you out of bed every day, you feel inspired. So what's kind of next for you? What's your aspirations that you still like to continue to achieve? What's next for Liz, basically, on the horizon? I feel extremely fortunate to be doing what I do now and be working in wellness, which has come so much to the fore after starting out there 35 years ago to be back in it is an absolute dream come true. I never would have imagined it all those years ago. And I'd love to be doing more of the same. I have a podcast and I'd love that to be bigger and better and to be more amplified. I'd love the magazine to have more readers back on TV. I'd love to be doing more of that. I'd you know, maybe have my own show one day. Just, I mean, just getting more of that well-being wisdom out there. And I think what this pandemic has taught us is that health is wealth and we absolutely need to prioritise it amongst, you know, before everything else and strip away all the vested interest and bias and false reporting and and actually get down to what really matters, what really matters to humankind and particularly, I guess, for women. I feel that midlife women are shortchanged in healthcare. You know, next time perhaps we'll talk about hormones and perimenopause and all of that because that's such a such a big area for women and there's a lot of, you know, disservice that's that's done to women you know, just in general. I was reading just in the news recently that it's only very, very recently that the NHS have recognised interstitial cystitis as being an ongoing health concern for women. You know, previously it's just been, oh, you've just got a bit of pelvic pain, love. You know, you've probably got a bit of thrush. Never, no, no, don't, don't worry about it. Drink some cranberry juice. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and, and you know, let's not, you know, talk about endo and fibroids and all of that. I mean, it's it's just the, the lack of research that goes into this for women. And when you think of everything that women do, we tend to be the caregivers. We tend to be the ones having the children and still holding down careers. And I can't tell you how many chief executives I've interviewed over the years who've said, well, you know, I do all of this, but ultimately it's still my fault if there's no milk in the fridge. We really are expected to be jugglers and multitaskers. And then when you get to later life, our hormones conspire against us. We lose our estrogen. We can end up losing our minds, our sanity, our mental health relationships, take a nosedive. And I just think that there's a lot that can be done to support midlife women. And, and I think ultimately that's what I want to do more of. You have got your last book, which you wrote on the menopause. And there was definitely parts of this that I wanted to get more into, but... I think we're going to have to bring you on again next time in the next season <laughs> to actually talk more about this in depth as a follow on from this fantastic episode. This is the background and I guess now we can go more into the depths of it. But I completely agree with you as a nutritionist and somebody who works heavily in that sector and with mental health. It is definitely one that is heavily overlooked. I think a lot of subjects that have a stigma attached, an embarrassment side attached to it is ones that, especially for women who really feel like they have to hold it all together. <laughs> to then admit that is terrifying and it feels very vulnerable. And so I think there's definitely an importance around highlighting that more. And you are doing a fantastic job. And I would say, please go and look at Liz's Wellbeing magazine. Please download the podcast because I know you cover this a lot. And the website, we put so many free resources on hormones and gut health and mental health. It's just all up on the website. You know, you can download it free. The podcast is free. It's good stuff, although I say it myself, it's evidence-based and it's, it's pretty solid. 
can you just give us the link and obviously I'll pop this in the show notes where they can head to what's the website called just so make sure I don't get it wrong it's very simply lizardwellbeing.com and on podcast it's the Lizard Wellbeing Show and we're on all the usual suspects Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, even newly on TikTok. Don't really understand TikTok, but apparently we well, are. You on are it. a step ahead <laughs> of me because I can't bring myself to go on TikTok. And don't even get me started on Snapchat. I was saying to my kids, so you put a picture and, and then it disappears? Well, I, I, don't, I don't really understand. Sorry. <laughs> and they're going, oh, mom. <laughs> I mean, you are light years ahead of me. So you are on track. But I will obviously put that all in the show notes because I think that's so important for people obviously listening to this to now say, well, where can I go and find this, Sarah? So I'll make sure I'll put that all in the show notes. But the question I always like to leave the show with, and it's one that I'm fascinated to know what your answer to this is going to be, is what does live well, be well mean to you? Oh, my goodness. Live well, be well. I think it's about living in balance and it's not sweating the small stuff. You know, I always think when something really bad happens, I think, okay, let's put this into context. Is this going to matter to me in five years' time? If in five years' time it's still an absolute crisis, then yeah, for sure, we need to do something about it. If in five years' time I'm going to be looking back saying, Sorry, what, what, who, who said that? What was that? I, have no, I can't even remember that, what that was about. And that, for me, just puts things, it frames things and it helps me to prioritise and just to keep sane because, you know, people say mean things or bad things happen all the time. And actually, if you can really frame that around how important is this and I'm not going to let this affect my mental health and my well-being unless it's critical. Putting it into context, I think that's really really important actually and not allowing yourself to absorb too much negativity which is something that many of us can um we need to try vibrating on a higher frequency that's something I'm looking at at the moment is energetic vibrations which all sounds a bit woo-woo which is quite hard for me because I am evidence-based but there's a lot of good stuff happening so watch this space next book Liz (laughs) maybe Fascinating. Honestly, I feel like I can't wait to know what the next book's going to be about now after hearing these nuggets of information of what you're really interested in. So thank you just for coming on and sharing a wealth of knowledge, energy, so much inspiration. Just carrying on as well, giving out this health information, which is something that I'm very passionate about myself. And so it's just, it's inspiring to see somebody else actioning it and delivering it. So thank you. Thank you for having me and huge congrats on all that you're doing because I know as one well-being brand founder to another, it's not easy and you're making a big difference to people's lives. So well done. Be encouraged. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Live Well, Be Well. All the information covered in today's podcast with important links is in today's show notes. And if you haven't yet, please do hit the subscribe button and do share this with friends, family, co-workers, whoever you love, please share this podcast. It means more than you realize. And until next week, I hope you all live well and be well.